All right, wait, welcome to Legal Tech Week for uh, October 30th, 2020. Uh, and uh, this is Bob Ambrogi. I am uh, the moderator of the program. I write the blog, Law Sites, and also have the podcast, Law Next, about uh, innovation in law. And uh, we uh, have uh, a little change to our, our lineup today. We have a, a, a guest joining us, Steve Embry. Steve, why don't you uh, introduce yourself? Sure, uh, and thanks for having me, Bob. Um, Steve Embry, I live in Louisville, Kentucky. I practiced uh, law with the uh, MLaw 200 firm for a number of years and then left to start publishing a blog called Tech Law Crossroads, which is uh, about legal technology and legal innovation and disruption and anything else I want to write about because it's my blog and I can do that. And uh, so I'm looking forward to, to being a part of this. And of course, you make a lot more money from blogging than you ever did at, at a big law firm, right? Yeah, yeah, just, uh, I've noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and our other panelists this week, uh, Nikki, you want to introduce yourself? Sure thing. My name is Nikki Black. I am the legal technology evangelist with my case practice management software. I write our um, regular columns for ABA Journal above the law. Uh, the Daily Record, and also a uh, regular post on the My Case blog. And um, I don't have anything funny to say. I can never think of funny things to say, like some of you do. So I have nothing. I got nothing to add. <laughs> right. That's okay. Victor, how about you? Hi, everyone. My name is Victor Lee. I'm Assistant Managing Editor for the ABA Journal. I cover the business of law, and that includes technology. And my standard disclaimer is I don't speak for the ABA or the ABA Journal. I do have my own blog where I speak for myself, but nobody reads it and I make no money off it, so. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And Victoria. Hey everyone, my name is Victoria Hudgens. I'm at Legal Tech News, which is owned by ALM, where I cover primarily cybersecurity, tech in the legal industry, and I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And last but not least, Zach. Hey there, everybody. I'm Zach Warren. I'm also with Legal Tech News. You'll also find me elsewhere on ALM, which includes the Law.com Barometer newsletter that is now weekly, and I just happen to write this week, as well as ALM's flagship podcast, Legal Speak, in which I also happen to be the lead interview this week. Um, so check some things out. Yeah, it's plug week for me. And a couple of our usuals are not here this week. Uh, Caroline Hill is off on uh, some vacation fun, I guess. And Joe Patrice is off coaching uh, a debate team. And uh, Molly McDonough is not feeling well. So send her, uh, send her best wishes and hope she's back here next week. Uh, so I thought uh, we would give uh, uh, give give Steve the the newbie advantage uh, or the newbie courtesy and and let him kick things off with uh, something he wrote about this week. So Steve, take it away. Sure. Um, and I thought you were going to say I had to sing a fight song or something. <laughs> you initiate. We. I am still kicking myself that I didn't make everybody wear a costume this week. But, uh. <laughs> well, I'm glad you didn't make me sing. Um, yeah, it was uh, kind of interesting. I did a, a piece earlier this week about uh, an agreement between the, uh, the LexisNexis uh, Rule of Law Foundation and the National Bar Association. Um, and I, actually, I'd never heard of the LexisNexis Rule of Law Foundation before, um, but was surprised to find that they, they do a lot of really good things. Um, and of course, the National Bar Association uh, is a, is a very large association, primarily of African-American attorneys and has some judges in it. And so the two of them have linked up to, to try to create uh, and develop some projects to, to combat racism uh, and racial inequality in the United States and to put together some election safeguard uh, kits and training tools. Um, uh, I don't know that they'll get that done before next week, which would be nice, but, uh, but I was really surprised to learn that the, the, the foundation has, uh, has done a lot of things and created a lot of projects. They created a, uh, an app designed to authenticate uh, video uh, atrocities uh, that could occur that, so the, the person can take a, a video and it's date stamped, uh, time stamped, location stamped, then uploaded to uh, LexisNexis servers where it's maintained for 
for future reference um, without any ability for anybody to trace that video back to who actually, who actually took it. Uh, they've also been involved in um, uh, some, uh, some lobbying efforts uh, throughout the states, United States uh, for uh, human trafficking, uh, model, model human trafficking laws, which is a you know, ongoing problem. They've worked with the United Nations to develop some, some frameworks for, uh, to encourage businesses to support the rule of law. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about it, I spent some time with Ian McDougall, who uh, is the president of the foundation. He's also general counsel of LexisNexis, uh, really interesting guy. And he was, you know, he was saying, you know, we don't, the foundation doesn't really sponsor stuff as much as it does create projects uh, uh, to help people kind of in a practical sort of sense. And, um, you know, I thought about that and he went on to say, you know, we don't, uh, we don't, we're not doing this to get our name out there because most everybody knows who LexisNexis is that, that really matters to us. It's, it's just sort of the, we think it's the right thing to do. Um, and, you know, skeptical me with my lawyer training, put on my, man, what's, what's the angle here for a while? And I, I racked my brain for a while and really, I really couldn't come up with a whole lot of, you know, mercenary kind of uh, uh, motive for Alexis Nexus to, to be doing this other than, you know, it may appeal to people they may be trying to recruit but that, uh, that want to work for companies that have a social justice kind of, kind of end of things. Um, and that's pretty, pretty indirect. And, and it, you know, I'd actually thought about it. I thought, well, Lexus Nexus dropped this program tomorrow, probably wouldn't impact the bottom line whatsoever. So uh, I really believed Ian when he, you know, he was saying we are sort of doing this because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, it, uh, I got a fair amount of, of clicks on it, uh, a fair amount of comments and people were like, you know, it's nice to have a good story about something, particularly right now, there's not a whole lot of, of good going on. And, uh, you know, the, the rule of law is uh, pretty important. They, they have a real interesting tracking device on their website where they assess various countries' uh, 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 devotion to the rule of law about some various categories. And, and then they go on to, to assess how that how that correlates with certain metrics like gross domestic uh, product or crime or infant mortality. Um, and, and interestingly enough, uh, it should be obvious, but the more committed a country is to the rule of law, the higher they score in, in all of those things, uh, which is really interesting when you get down to infant mortality and, and uh, even life expectancy. Um, and of course, you know, we're like to say in this country, we're devoted to the rule of law. And I think that for in large part, the rule of law has helped us flourish as a sort of economic powerhouse. Um, and I think what they're doing sort of supports that in a lot of ways. But uh, so it's fun to write and it was fun to talk to Ian. I don't know if any of you guys have ever uh, had a chance to talk with him. He's, he, was a, he was a cool guy and uh, really, really passionate about what he's doing with the foundation. Anybody uh, have thoughts on that or? Yeah, I, I thought I, I was just looking at it just now. It's definitely interesting. I never really thought about the correlation between having a strong rule of law and having higher life expectancy, higher GDP, that kind of stuff. But I, it makes sense. I mean, you know, if you have, you know, um, a strong rule of law, that would tend to, that would, that would tend to, you know, I guess thinking about it, it, it would make sense that those would, would uh, there'd be a correlation there. Like, so it was, it was nice to see that data in front of me. Um, I thought it was interesting that we that, that I guess the United States was lower than um, than than certain certain other countries, um, as particularly like uh, in, in our in, in our continent and also uh, in, in in Europe and whatnot. But I guess I guess that um, I'd be interested to, to, to I'd be interested to um, to look at you know sort of like 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 what the index like 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 the the, uh, the trend of the index over the last like decade to see where we were 10 years ago, as opposed to where we are now. Uh, so I don't know if they have that data, but I'd be fascinated to, 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 to learn about that. Yeah, you know, when, as you were talking, I was thinking that it's the very same thing and, you know, wished I would have um, would have asked Ian about that because that would be kind of interesting to, to, to see it. They're making a strong push to, to make a business case for it, uh, to try to get, you know, business to support it, which, 
you know, of course, makes a lot of sense because for businesses, you know, they, they can, if there's some certainty uh, so that they can predict what's going to happen as a business, they can deal with almost anything. And if you have a process where you know that you can get disputes adjudicated in a fair way so that you can predict things, it really, you know, it really makes your, your business viability a whole lot better. So, you know, particularly now, I mean, it's, and I've talked about this in various posts where I think given the access to justice problem in, in this country, we've got so many people that really have no concept of the rule, what the rule of law means and don't see its importance. And it's fundamentally important, you know, to our economic viability of them. So yeah, it would be interesting to see, Victor, how that trend has, has gone. I, I have my suspicions, but I won't voice them. <laughs> oh no, I have my suspicions too. That, that's well, that's why I asked that question. So. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe, maybe we're both wrong. You know? Yeah, could be. <laughs> well, I think I think it's interesting that I you know I think uh, we we often tend to think of uh, of particularly the larger corporations that we buy services from as you know greedy big corporations or at least profit driven big corporations. And uh, it's, it's good to see them giving back uh, uh, in, in this kind of a way. Uh, Thomson Reuters has something also that they call the Thomson Reuters foundation, uh, which does things like has a global pro bono program uh, and uh, deals with uh, various programs to promote social and environmental change around the world. Uh, and, uh, these things, uh, do tend to probably, you know, we, we probably don't, uh, do enough to highlight, uh, the good programs that some of these companies are doing. So, so good for you, Steve, for, for yeah. writing about that. Yeah. And like I say, I was, I was really encouraged by how many people sort of liked it and actually read it and looked at it. And, you know, that, that was kind of, that was kind of neat that, you know, other people sort of enjoyed seeing that kind of good news for a change. Yeah. <laughs> I always kind of wonder with these types of like legal, well, eyewitness to atrocities, that type of app, like how do they make sure that the people that may actually deal with the instances of violence or atrocities, I think um, that they actually know that that's available to them. And I always think that's kind of like one of the issues that these types of legal tech uh, apps or software they have was kind of like, okay, us in the legal tech world or those kind of like in research, like we understand, but the people that may actually be dealing with this, they don't know if it's maybe not in a commercial or heavily shared on Facebook or something like that. So that's always the one thing I'm always considering, like how are they making sure like people that actually need this type of help know that it's available. Yes, yeah, good point because I mean, um, I didn't even know that there was a, found, a, a rule of law foundation at all, much less that they had apps like this. So if I don't know it, didn't know it, and I reasonably keep up with what's going on, I think they try to, you know, how would how would the users you know, that have no connection to it, how would they know it? But I, particularly in, well, I guess here in, in the United States and everywhere for that matter. Right, yeah. Uh, all right, well, moving on. Um, Zach, I don't know if you want to talk about that that uh, interesting lawsuit that, yeah, that uh, you guys sure. talked yeah. about this week. Before we move on real quick, I just wanted to point to the chat yeah, as well. Ahead. We did get one person going in who does know the foundation who says that Ian works with the local NGOs to get the word out. So just, good. yeah, one note um, about that. It, it's good taking the next step to make sure that anything that is happening is applicable, of course. Um, so with that, I will go to the complete opposite end of the spectrum and be the pessimist <laughs> here and talk about lawsuits. Um, earlier this week, uh, Dan Packle, one of my colleagues at The American Lawyer, wrote about how the corpse of LeClaire Ryan sued uh, United Lex, an ALSP that I think a lot of us here know, for I believe it was 128 million, basically saying that they, well, there was a highly publicized outsourcing agreement between the two and LeClaire Ryan alleges that Everything that United Lex was doing essentially pushed them even further into bankruptcy than they originally were. The original agreement was supposed to be something that was helping them dig out of the hole by outsourcing pretty much all of their back office stuff. Claire Ryan says, no, well, United Lex didn't go back on that agreement, but tried to adjust the agreement and played financial games, games that actually ended up hurting. 
Um, so I, I thought it was interesting more than anything else, A, because the lawsuit or the partnership in the beginning was very highly publicized. A lot that United Lex around that time was, uh, that was, they were doing was very, very highly publicized. I can't speak today. It's Friday afternoon. Um, <laughs> but it, so just from the follow-up standpoint, I find it interesting, but also, especially because I've been doing a lot of reporting around alternative legal service providers. And one thing that keeps popping up for me is, man, if just one bad experience happens to a major law firm, that spreads and people start to get skittish about new law alternative legal service providers as an entire category because of a bad experience like that could, especially a major lawsuit like this, have negative ramifications for people adopting that sort of alternative legal service provider model. Um, very speculative at this point, of course, and there's, I'm sure, a lot to come out with a lawsuit, but I do find it very interesting. You know, I, when I first saw it, and I read, I read Dan's article too, and, you know, I kind of immediately went off to, well, how are they ever going to prove that? Because LeClaire Ryan had lots of problems. But then it dawned on me that, that it's really not a lawsuit by LeClaire Ryan. It's the bankruptcy trustee. And so a lot of the lawsuit is not, um, you know, did you cause LeClaire Ryan to go down is, did you get money from uh, the bankrupt, LeClaire Ryan, that was preferential and now you have to pay back to the benefit of the other creditors. So you get into all these corporate kind of, kind of issues. And one of the things that could have an impact, I think, is the way that deal was structured you know, where they were joint venturers and what they were doing. So what does that mean when you start thinking about um, uh, law firm ownership and ownership stakes in law firms? And are those ethical violations of, you know, the non, the non-ownership rules and where does that take you in it? So there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of issues that are kind of unique to, to bankruptcy in that, in that case that, First of all, I should say, well, I'm not sure how much general applicability it does, but it could have a huge applicability. You know, I just, I'm not a bankruptcy lawyer. I, I know one time in my early career, I thought I would become one. And I went to a seminar and walked out and I said, these people aren't even speaking English. I don't know. What are they talking about? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see how that plays out, uh, you know, in terms of sort of the, the ownership kind of payments and monies and all that flow through. Yeah. And it, it sounds like it's from what I read in the article, it it's not necessarily a cautionary tale about ALSPs. It's it's rather a cautionary tale about faltering law firms making bad business deals in the first place, because it sounded like LeClaire Ryan was already in trouble before it even entered into this. You know, I remember when this happened, it was much ballyhooed, much touted as, you know, a, a new a, a new model for law firms. Uh, uh, partnering with with an ALSP, but it sounds in fact like it was more like a, a, a an attempt to throw for Le, Leclerc Ryan to throw itself a lifeline in, in a sense uh, from what was already a bad situation. Um, yeah, I've, I mean, I've, I've been following the Leclerc Ryan uh, affair uh, for <laughs> for for a little while. I, you know, I mean, one of my reporters wrote a really good feature about kind of looking at everything and whatnot. And yeah, I mean, they were like, I think they they missed. They missed budget like 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 several times leading up to their demise. Um, you know they were um, they had all kinds of problems with like payments to partners and things like that. So so they were they were definitely you know I mean United Lex wasn't you know I, I don't know I don't know if that was meant to try to save them or to give them a lifeline or whatnot. But they were never going to come in and say and 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 you know rescue rescue the firm or anything like that. So it's it, so on the one hand it's kind of unfair to say like okay well um, you know maybe the joint ventures thing. Uh, isn't going to work out with other firms uh, because 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 it failed with Leclerc Ryan because I feel like Leclerc Ryan had plenty of problems that they were kind of shielding or kind of that weren't that weren't known to the general public that that this deal was never going to work out. But I do think it's interesting how you know um, and, and I've um, I, I noticed that those talk about the Pulsinelli thing at the end. Um, you know that seems like that's it seems like that was more of like a step backward as far as like. You know, this is not a joint venture. This is just us taking on the back office stuff. We're 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 doing a very we're having a very we have very limited participation with this with this firm. Um, so, and you know, maybe maybe that's just maybe that's just how they felt. 
what they felt was was comfortable for them at this point. But uh, yeah, I do think it's interesting how how um, you know their follow up to the Leclerc Ryan thing was to kind of take a little step back and be like, okay, well let's let's. And I don't I don't know the circumstances behind that deal, but I do think it's interesting how how, how that how that how that shook, how that um, went down. Um, any other comments on that? We can we can transition to more bad, more law firm bad news. Uh, Victor, you you had a story this week uh, of, yeah, of so, another uh, law firm. Uh... Yeah, so I mean, you know, we've been hearing quite a bit about like law firm layoffs. Some of them have been public public uh, publicized. Some of them have been kind of stealth. But kind of what what struck me was the fact that this was Kirkland, uh, it's Kirkland and Ellis uh, conducting layoffs, and above the law reported this and whatnot. And I guess we're still waiting for all the details about that, but it's it's it seemed it, it, just the fact that it was Kirkland kind of struck me because it's like, well, this is a firm that's supposed to be, you know, the biggest firm in the country as far as like uh, gross revenue. They've been number one for I think the last several years. Uh, I could be wrong, but it's either been them or I think Latham. Um, and you know, they've they had a much like ballyhooed like a um, couple of years where they were bringing in all these all these uh, big name partners, uh, paying them tons of money. Um, and then, and then expanding like you know very rapidly some of their practice areas, and it seemed like you know they they either knew what they were doing or they were you know they had so much money that it didn't matter that they could take chances and whatnot, and now here they are laying people off. So, so I, I do wonder I do wonder um, what the what the final bill on that is going to be and how how that's going to shake out and the effects that and the effects that will have on other firms that maybe aren't as um, you know that don't have that kind of pedigree that don't have that kind of uh, money behind it, so uh, so I, I just find that interesting. That interesting. Well, part of, part of what's interesting, I think, is the timing, and uh, because the the conventional wisdom, or at least what people what what people who work at big firms or work with big firms keep telling me, is that they are all on the rebound and have been for a month or two now, anyway, if not a couple of months. That that they all saw, you know, uh, drops in in their business in the. Uh, immediate months following, you know, following mid-March when everything, when all hell broke loose. Uh, and, uh, you know, some firms did layoffs, you know, May, June. Uh, but the, a lot of firms are saying their their business has been turning around, things have been coming back. And, uh, you know, in uh, some of them are even, in fact, saying they're, they're, they're going to have very good years uh, in, in 2020 overall. So, uh, the fact that it's happening this late into the game uh, is interesting to me. I wonder if, if some of it <clears throat> sort of indirectly stems from a new analysis that, that a lot of firms are going through with respect to office space and how much they really, how much they really need. Um, and so, you know, it's one thing to say, we're going to, we're going to start hoteling partners and they're not going to have a fancy office. Another thing to say, you know, Maybe we could reduce our, our office footprint and do we really need all those people in the marketing department? And, and maybe we don't, so we can, we can jettison some of them and save space. And so I wonder if that, it may be that kind of analysis more than, you know, yeah, we're making a lot of money, but of course our big, biggest expense for law firms is salaries and the second is real estate. So those two, when they start, when they start looking at them together, I wonder if some of them are, are making those kinds of analysis. It's a shame because those are the people that, that need the work the most, right? right. I mean, it's not the it's not the million dollar partner at the corner office. It's the administrative assistant that's working trying to make ends meet. But uh, yeah. yeah, that's that's what I was going to suggest as well. That it was a combination of uh, reconsider reconsideration of office space needs, but also fingers crossed. Let's hope maybe they're also adopting new technologies that are streamlining their efficiency a little bit. And they're realizing that with everyone working remotely, they're relying on those technologies a little more. And so perhaps they're realizing that some inefficiencies are, um, there's a lot of duplication of um, processes possibly that, and then they're having to reduce people. So I wonder if that's also happening because we all know COVID's pushed everyone about a decade ahead in terms of adoption of technology, cloud computing, and the processes that, help them streamline their work, uh, their firm's workflow. So I wonder if that also factors into it a little bit. Well, I will say the above the law article said that it was mostly staff members, uh, assistants, paralegals, secretaries, admin, but also IT personnel. So, hmm. <laughs> so, Interesting. so maybe, maybe it's not the tech for them because you, you think you, you think that they would need people to, to be around to help explain things to, to, 
the lawyers. Well, the, the IT personnel, that sort of brings up this fundamental conflict um, between IT staff and the cloud, right? Because IT staff have traditionally maintained their biggest task in recent years has been maintaining the servers and um, dealing with all the conflicts as software is downloaded. And obviously the hardware as well that's on everybody's desks. But as you move into the cloud, their functions shift. You know, and, they, and they're, not, they're not maintaining the servers as much because the servers are being run and owned by third parties. So that may be a bit of a reflection of the reduction of IT staff, maybe the adoption of um, the cloud that we're seeing more often. And that's what's one of the things that uh, Bob had written about that I thought was interesting um, that I was going to mention later was this sort of uh, that trend of cloud adoption and some things. You that can mention are it doing. now while you're talking <laughs> well, about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that I thought was really interesting was um, I, uh, I spoke at Alt Legal and um, uh, also attended a couple sessions there, but I also um, attended the INTAP um, conference as press. So they both had conferences this week and um, Intap's big announcement. And I've always been very interested in Intap because I stumbled across their wine party years ago at uh, Wine <laughs> and Cheese Tasting at um, Elsa, and I've been sucked in ever since. Because then I thought they were super interesting, but that wine and cheese was totally sucked me in. Um, but they actually <laughs> have a very works. interesting approach. I'm glad you to... have your priorities straight. <laughs> <laughs> so so for all, you, all, you, all you people who want coverage from Nikki, just remember she. <laughs> Just all about the wine and cheese. cheese. Everyone send uh, wine and cheese to Nikki and she'll cover you guys. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, About 10 people in the audience just signed Nikki up for Wine of the Month Club. (laughs) Oh, that'd be nice. But but then I, you know, I just talked my way into that party once I walked by it at Ilta years ago. But um, then I followed, uh, met with them over the years and I um, attended a few sessions of that conference. And their big announcement that you wrote about, Bob, was, that they're shifting all of their software into the cloud. And I think that that's, and they've always traditionally served the larger firm and possibly mid-sized markets, but really larger firms. And, and that's sort of this indication of this decades push. I'm sure they'd plan to do that, but this idea that COVID has accelerated things to such an, such an extent that some of these companies are making these business decisions that we're going all cloud and that's gonna force the customers all cloud, but it has, has got to be partially driven by the fact that their customers began to look at those cloud products because of COVID earlier than they'd planned as well. So I, I do think that we're seeing this. Um, and, and I think the fact that there's a surge happening now um, and that this is gonna be a long winter, I think a lot of, as soon as the elections over a lot of businesses, law firms and other businesses are gonna sort of reassess and come up with this like six month plan because it's pretty clear that the surge is happening and there's gonna be this, um, back and forth between being in the office and then going back to remote. And they need to create some sort of resiliency plan to address that. And cloud is often the best solution for that. Yeah, it's hard to imagine we that we ha- are not you know firmly on uh, a, a a path to uh, to uh, close to one hundred percent cloud at, at, at some point. Um, although I was talking to uh, to Andy Klein at Raining Court just just this morning, who was saying, I mean, there are. St- you know, still a lot of their customers, they, they're dealing with really big firms are still, you know, uh, pretty firmly uh, uh, entrenched in their, in their, uh, their uh, you know, I don't know if you call it on-premises because it's not really on-premises, but they're on-premises environment uh, in, in the loose sense of that word. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's going to take a while, I think, for it to change entirely, but well, that's what I found interesting about Intaps too, because I spoke with them also. And one thing they told me is, yeah, we were thinking about doing this anyway, but the whole reason we're making a super public push was actually the customers asked us to. They want backup internally saying, hey, this is a big company who's making right. this move. We want to be able to go along with them. Hey, internal buy-in come, please, like stakeholders, help us move to the cloud. Um, so Intap saying, yeah, we wanted to be a partner in that way too, just the whole change management of it, I thought was interesting. Yeah, yes. yeah I saw the announcement too and went to some of the Intap sessions and frankly, it didn't, it, didn't, I didn't, it didn't dawn on me that sort of like that would be an issue because you know, once I got away from the law firm, it, the use of the cloud seemed to be so much, so normal, right? But then I reflected back when I when I was practicing law with the, with the firm, 
there was a lot of pushback to any notion of, of going to the cloud and to the point that, that there'd be this sort of guerrilla warfare with partners, you know, refusing to put stuff in the cloud and keeping it, you know, on, on premises so they could somehow have access to it. And, and, and frankly, there was also a confusion uh, about what that meant, right? I mean, they, there were a lot of lawyers who, who didn't understand the difference between having all your files at the time the firm was using NetDocs, having everything in NetDocs versus having everything on premises. And they, they didn't understand like that, that was something different uh, and, and something good. Uh, of course, you know, lawyers never take the time to understand that kind of stuff anyway. So, um, so yeah, I guess, it, I guess for a lot of firms and a lot of lawyers, it's still a big issue, uh, which is it's just sort of amazes me still. I guess I've, I've been out of the law firm long enough that I'm like, what? You're not going to go to the club? What? Right. Well, and that's one thing we were, I think we're going to talk about the ABA um, tech report at some point, but the thing that's always interested me about the ABA's legal technology survey report is that they will have a question, you know, um, how many of you use the cloud as for work-related purposes? And the numbers are always, you know, they have gone up increasingly every year. They were plateaued at 30% for a while. Now they're, I think they're up to 58%. But that should be, you know, knowingly use the cloud. Because when I have, when I've spoken at conferences, I'll, I'll ask the room, like, how many of you use cloud computing? And like, four lawyers used to raise their hand about five years ago. And then I'll say, how many of you use Dropbox? And like half the room would raise their hand. I'm like, oh, for God's sake, like, <laughs> you don't even know you're in the cloud. Like they honestly just don't understand. And you know, if, a, if your client emails you and they use a Gmail account and you respond with confidential client information, you understand that your confidential, that confidential client data is now in the cloud, correct? And most lawyers will look at you bewildered and then they start to get a little shocked and then they panic <laughs> but you know lawyers have been using the cloud and they don't understand that they're in it i think now that knowledge is uh they're starting to realize that but it's taken a long time and now they're starting to realize that there's a lot of benefits especially with covid and working remote yeah, yeah it, was, it was sort of like i don't know what the cloud is but i don't like it <laughs> yeah i mean i think one of the problems with the tech that aba tech survey has been that uh they have in, in order to to be able to compare year against year, they've been trying to keep they try and keep the questions they ask very similar from year to year. But some of the questions are starting to get out of date because they've been doing it so long, or some of them were already out of date because they've been doing it for so long. And it, they really need to, I think, go through, do a kind of a complete overhaul of, of the questions they're asking in that survey uh, to reflect where we are in, in this point of time. Uh, and, um, and the ones about the cloud are often some of the ones that, that seem to be, they're like written probably like around the time you wrote your book, Nikki, or something, you know, it's like yeah. an earlier and understanding of the cloud. And, and but, like Victor, I guess I should say, since I'm involved in the law practice division, my opinions in no way reflect the law practice division or the LTRC or the ABA either. But yeah. you know, one of the things about the survey that, that is interesting is it, it covers this, this broad spectrum of, of lawyers and so you have to be careful about the conclusions that you draw from it. So, you know, you could say, well, the big, big law firms are using the cloud computing more, but you've got two respondents from big law firms, right? So you really have to kind of parse the demographics yeah. down of, of yeah. what it, yeah. it is skewed more toward uh, solo and smaller, small law firms, I think. Right, because which is which is a perfect segue for Victoria yeah. because she actually wrote about the uh, uh, the uh, ABA tech survey this week. So, Victoria, what did you see? What did you read? Yeah, last week um, I wrote two articles about the ABA um, tech report, and there were um, like Nikki. And the cloud adoption is always like a weird like response where people say, I don't use the cloud. But then you see so many people use Dropbox or Gmail. And it's like, that is the cloud. But you know, I guess they view it differently. But one of the things I thought was kind of interesting was the low uses of project management software. And even among larger law firms, which I kind of assume they would use project management software because they maybe deal with more like larger litigation. Um, but the adoption was fairly low. And I spoke to some law firms about that. Well, one law firm consultant about that. And she just said that the project management software is too clunky and that lawyers just kind of don't need 
the certain type of information that those software can provide. And one other source at another law firm at Fisher and Phillips, I believe it was, she said that sometimes it is still clunky for some law firms and sometimes the lawyer's clients um, request that they use a specific type of project management software. So they use that, but they won't use what's provided by the law firm. And someone at Reed Smith, she was pretty adamant that yes, lawyers use project management software. They just maybe don't know that they're actually using it when they are using it. So I thought that was kind of interesting in her, um, when I asked her, well, she told me that um, you may, more lawyers will probably be using project management software as they deal with um, more lawyers start working with like your alternative legal service providers and the use of technology, they'll have to keep track of more players in their litigation that um, the use of software will be needed to track like the uh, deadlines, um, who's taking care of what, who was assigned to what. So it'd be interesting to see if like lawyers actually figure out like, yeah, I actually am using project management software. And if we'll start to see an incline on that. And I also wrote about legal tech um, purchases and specifically um, finding out that uh, legal staff feedback can like kill a deal. Like if they're not the ones writing the check, of course, at the law firm, but the law firms always outside of like solo practitioners, legal staff feedback was like the leading resource in making a legal tech purchase decision. And from speaking to small law and, well, no, I didn't get around to speaking to small law firms, but mid-sized and large law firms, they also said that they um, turned to their staff for feedback on like a proposed technology that, you know, they may be getting a demo on or considering implementing because it's the staff that, have, that has the, um, they're on the ground actually using the technology. They know the ins and outs. They know when certain things would maybe be a little bit more inefficient or provide, provide efficiencies. So they definitely take their feedback at heart. And one, uh, I think he was a law firm CIO. He did say you kind of have to weigh some people just don't like change, but it's just kind of like if all of your staffers that you go to to maybe take part in the demo, if they're saying like, no, this isn't good. It wouldn't help us at all. That could most likely that legal tech company wouldn't get that sell at that law firm. So it's interesting to see, even in large law firms, the number was really high. Like you have to reach out to your staff to see like what they need and let them see the product or talk to them about the um, legal technology to see like, would it actually be helpful or would it not be helpful? Yeah, on the, um, on the issue of the project management software, I, I thought that was interesting, um, but I wonder whether it, I wonder whether, again, that's an issue of how do you define what project management yeah. software is? Because uh, increasingly, I mean, for example, increasingly a number of practice management programs or contract management programs are, are introducing process management or, you know, sort of process automation that in a way are almost like project management. It's like a case comes in the door and then you plug it into a sort of a, a, a set of, of somewhat automated tasks in the practice management program that walk you through, you know, in a not entirely literal sense, but somewhat literal sense. They, they walk you through the steps of, of how you handle that case or move that case forward from the time a, a client first contacts you about a potential matter all the way through, you know, taking it to trial or whatever. Uh, and I wonder if that kind of those kind of process automation programs are serving as a kind of a substitute for what would be project management in other contexts. Yeah, and that's definitely what I think the um, project manager, Reese Smith, what she was getting at that like these types of software can be integrated or processes integrated into various software that lawyers just don't know that they're actually using the um, a project management software, but yeah. they are using it. So. Yeah. It is kind of interesting. It's kind of like wondering the wording, like when you see the question, what did um, respondents think? And it's kind of like maybe that made up the responses a little bit. Yeah. Of course, that assumes that lawyers know what project management is, which is right. maybe <laughs> not an entirely safe assumption sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Right. One thing I did want to throw out there before I forgot about um, the tech report, I would, I don't understand why they don't talk about wearable tech and the types of wearable technology lawyers use, smartwatches at least. I keep waiting for them to provide statistics on that because I've always been really interested in it from the moment they came out, um, the Apple Watch. I predicted in an article that I wrote way back when it first came out that 
seems like a long time ago was probably just a couple of years ago, but um, that I thought lawyers would really, especially women lawyers would want to start using um, Apple watches for the notification settings um, in particular. And these days I noticed that half the lawyers in the room are wearing smartwatches. I don't think that's necessarily an exaggeration at this point. So I would love to actually see the statistics rather than a bunch of lawyers at a tech conference, which is a little bit skewed. So they do <laughs> have a, um, they actually, I just looked real quick. They do have a um, question. They asked them about smart wearables. Um, let's see. I, I Googled, I, I just searched the document and it looked like it was somehow based. It wasn't necessarily the smart wearable the way that we're thinking about it. If you, I looked at that before I spoke to make sure that, cause I haven't okay. read the entire report, but I might be, I might've um, not looked carefully enough when I did see that it's like in an index, right? Smart wearable. Yeah, it was about um, breakdown of the types of devices used regularly and occasionally mm -hmm. by respondents when conducting legal research. Yeah, that's what was strange. <laughs> yeah, that was a little bit weird. Why not just wear, wear um, um, smart tech while you're just working? But yeah, okay. I don't know how you even use your watch for research. There must be something I'm missing out on. I don't know. <laughs> Does anyone maybe, ever use maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe that's maybe that, that question was written when people when everyone thought Google Glass was going to be the next big thing, and then that way you could just like look things up like with your glasses. And then they just <laughs> yeah. I don't out. know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, that's my wish. Uh, I want to throw out there. I'd love that statistic somewhere. Yeah. Um, have we gone all the way around except to me or Nikki? Did you have any? Was there something else you wanted to talk about or? Um. Well, the, I. Um, oh, your article on analytics. That was ABA, really good. Yeah. That was a really good article. I, I, um, this, my ABA article every month, I write about a different kind of software. And this year I've been revisiting the 2018 um, articles that I wrote because a lot changes in two years in legal tech. And so I wrote about litigation analytics tools in 2018. And this was my sort of revamp. And um, uh, it's interesting. I think the thing that really stood out to me was um, the, the people that own the data are doing some of the most, that own the most data are doing some of the most creative stuff with that data. So, um, and Lexus, Nexus in particular always really interests me because they've made some investments and some acquisitions and they're doing a lot with Context and um, Lex Machina. But, um, you know, Bloomberg and um, Thomson Reuters also are doing a lot with um, certain aspects of litigation analytics. And then there's a bunch of other companies that have um, been around for a few years now that do this and they're all adding more and more databases and more and more types of legal um, analytics, which is um, as they get their hands on more data. Um, and you know, Fastcase has um, Docket Alarm, they acquired that company. So there's a lot of companies investing in trying to take advantage of the efficiencies and the access to information, uh, efficiencies at least in terms of mining all that data and making sense of it um, and the access to information that previously it, it was available, but it would have taken human eyes far too long to parse through it and make sense of it. So it's just interesting to see the growth in that space and um, the different companies um, as they enlarge their databases and provide different types of um, reporting capabilities. Yeah, I think and, uh, I'll add a link. I don't think I did that. I'll do that now. Lexus Nexus, they just got the state court data from Manhattan, was it, I think? And I think they've got a few other state, not entire states, but localized states. And that's, I always thought that's, that'll be the, that's the holy grail of data analytics, right? Because there's so much litigation, at least litigation data analytics. It's all, most of it's in state court. And that's where you, you, most, most lawyers practice. And yet it's the, it's the hardest nut to crack because of the way it's structured or, or not structured, I guess is a better way to put it. Yeah, that's the problem. They don't, it's not easily accessible. And they, that was, uh, Gavalytics was the other one that announced uh, this week that by the end of the year, they'll, they'll have data from 20 state courts. Uh, not all of the data from all of the courts in those states, but uh, they did say they would have, for the, for the 20 states, they'll at least have all the major metropolitan uh, court data for those 20 states. So that's pretty significant. They're, they're doing some cool stuff too. I, I think, you know, they started out as being just judge analytics in California and, and now they're doing uh, lawyer and law firm and litigant analytics. Um, and so I, I think it'll be interesting to see how they, how they evolve and what they do with what they've got. Uh, I, it, that's a whole area that really fascinates me. I mean, I, 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 I've, I've probably said this before here, but in some ways I, I think, 
some of what's happening with, with analytics is, is almost really more interesting than, than some of what's happening with AI, despite all the buzz about AI and legal, because the analytics stuff is just so directly practical uh, and transferable in terms of what a lawyer does in, in court or, or uh, otherwise. Uh, you know, some of, the, some of the litigation analytics can be really useful uh, uh, and, and directly applicable, whereas some of the AI stuff in some of the contexts is still pretty abstruse and, and remote. But. I guess I would be remiss if I didn't point out at this point that there's still a dispute between Bob and I. That's who said not using data analytics. Litigation data analytics could be malpractice. And I swear it was him. I didn't say it. I copied it from him. <laughs> but I wrote it an article attributing the quote to you. And Steve said, no, you said it. <laughs> but one of us said it. Right? One of us said it. We both agree on that point anyway. Uh, I think my point. next point actually just got sniped by the chat because that's exactly what I was going to say. Going back to my old days of baseball broadcasting, it reminds me so much of the Moneyball argument. Yeah. Um, whether it's going to be data centric for the, those litigation or litigators that really lean into the uh, analytics and say, oh, I don't want to be before this judge because she has a 30% success rate versus this one. It has a 50 versus the old school, do it by feel. I've been doing this for a while, have the wealth of knowledge, and I want to rely on that knowledge. I think the sweet spot is probably somewhere in between, but I am curious whether there is going to be that back and forth. Well, because I mean, just, just even watching baseball, like, I mean, I, st I stopped watching baseball for a long time, but just watching the World Series, like, I mean, like in game six, when they took out Blake Snell after he was like, uh, this might be a little too inside baseball, so to speak. But like, <laughs> what, like Tampa, took, Tampa took out their, 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 their starting pitcher, even though he was like on a two hitter uh, in the sixth inning, because they have this, they have stats that show that, okay, if we go to our, if we go to, to our, to our flame throwing relief pitchers in these situations, they're, they have a higher percentage of success rate as opposed to just leaving the starting pitcher in. Whereas like the old school people are like, just leave him in. He was cruising. He was, he only gave up two hits. He was, you know, um, mowing down everybody that, that, that he faced. Why not just let him, let him, let him, let him you know, keep going until, until he can't throw anymore and then, and then bring in your bullpen. So I, I, I definitely see like a lot, like, like a little bit of that going because, you know, one thing that we've seen is just in covering the legal industry is that lawyers, especially litigators like to say, well, there's nothing that, there's nothing that replaces a good, a good advocate. There's nothing that replaces a good uh, trial lawyer that, you know, I can do things that, you know, that that can't be predicted by the stats. I can do things that aren't that don't that, that don't apply to you know what's happened before. And you know, I mean, I I, I definitely see that like yeah, that 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 uh, you know you, you have arguments to, to be made on both sides of the equation. But probably you know like like Zach was saying that you know um, the, the, there probably is a sweet spot in the middle where you can use the stats to inform what you do without just saying okay, well I'm not I'm not going to look at the stats because I know better than anybody else. I think yeah. it's so. I'm sorry, go ahead. I just think it's so entertaining that um, the men and presumably women that are interested in baseball immediately go to this analogy because there was a, um, you know, Zach brought up and there was a um, above the law article that talked about the same thing. And it's so funny to me because that above the law article, I was like, oh, great, legal analytics. And I was like, well, wah, 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 baseball. And I had the hardest time getting where's the good stuff. But you guys are all like super into it. So it's funny how there's just such a, it's a different way of looking at the exact same thing. But you, yep. you guys all, like your eyes all lit up at the, this analogy. <laughs> yeah, well, was jo Josh Becker used to, we can blame Josh Becker at, at Lex Machina because I think he was the one who started calling it Moneyball for lawyers uh, a few years back, or I don't know, maybe he didn't, but uh, he used it all the time. And, yeah, it's, uh, uh, and it, it's really, a, it's kind of a, an issue, it's multifaceted. I was on the Three Geek, Geeks podcast, I guess, Thursday. Um, and we were talking about my, my uh, second favorite podcast. We were talking about the need for young associates to be in the presence of the almighty partner in order to learn how to be a lawyer. And, I, you know, I was saying, well, because the first problem is we don't know what we're training for. What does it mean to be a good lawyer? Right. I mean, it's it, and again, to use the baseball analogy, it was if you remember from Moneyball, it was. You had all these baseball executives saying, oh, he looks like a ball player, right? He's good. So, so, but um, he looks like a lawyer. Well, that just means he looks like, you know, 
old white guy. He looks like a lawyer, right? <laughs> and so, I mean, and my point on the, on the show was, you know, rather than saying you have to be physically present with a partner to learn how to be a good lawyer, why don't we like first say, what does it mean to be a good lawyer and then train to that? Let's, let's use some, some data and some statistical analysis and define what it is we mean when we say Bob is a good and successful lawyer. Right? And, and let's, let's reach some agreement on that and then train to that as opposed to saying, oh, let's, let's let Bob go be the apprentice to you know, somebody else that's older and supposedly wiser, which may or may not be the case. And so it's, it's the use of the data across the board in law is so many, so many areas for improvement. I think if we just get beyond this sort of notion of oh, I, I intuitively know, or I know from experience or, you know, yeah. I, I did over my years, I did enough jury research to know, and maybe I'm just not very intuitive, but a lot of times what I thought a jury would do turned out to be wrong. <laughs> right. Right. You know, the other uh, issue is that the firm that, that, of, of clients, uh, uh, using data to try and determine who is a good lawyer looking at the court data. Uh, um, I know Nikki, you wrote about what is, is it prevalent? Not, not, not prevalent. What's one of the companies that, that really focus on the clients taking this court data to the clients. Uh, but you know, there, even there again, I mean, it's, you know, a win loss ratio does not tell you whether somebody's a good lawyer or not. Uh, you could be, uh, the, one of the best lawyers in the world, if you're constantly taking on really tough cases uh, or really challenging cases, because that's what interests you, you might have a horrible win-loss ratio, but yeah. still be a, a brilliant litigator. Uh, same goes for judges. I mean, judges who were frequently overturned on appeal, it might be, be not that they're bad judges. It might be because that they're willing to push the law and, and uh, make decisions that, uh, uh, you know, stretch the boundaries a little bit. Um, and uh, so. yeah, I think the, the better predictor, and I hired a lot of local counsel over the years because of the kind of work that I was doing. The thing, thing that I would be more interested in than one, one loss ratio is how many cases has this lawyer tried to verdict? Um, yeah. And because you, you, I was always amazed that the number of lawyers, when it came time to be local counsel for a matter who would, who would swear that they had tried 50 cases in front of judge so-and-so. Well, you could tell by, you know, talking to them for a while, this probably wasn't true, but there was no way to like check that. How would you right. know? We call yeah. the judge. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just, just that piece, uh, this, that piece of information is, is, critical, not only yeah. from the lawyer you might hire, but the lawyer on the other side. How many yeah. cases have, have they tried? Yeah. And I kind of, this conversation is interesting using like the monkey ball, like looking, looking at statistics and everything from a law firm's perspective, because I wrote about Schiff Harden. They released a, um, what was it? A claim simulation tool where they can, um, and I thought it was interesting how they actually built the software because it is tech. And I asked the lawyer that um, helped develop it, and I asked them what type of data did they use? Did they use any type of public data to see like how a claim could perhaps, um, the likelihood of certain claims would go to maybe like, um, what would be like the verdicts or would the um, verdict be like for the plaintiff or the defense or would the settlement be kind of high? And he said he actually didn't rely on any public data because court data is very biased because a lot of matters never even make it to court or to a verdict. And said he relied on Schiff Harden, like lawyers that had expertise in that, to ask them like, what's the likelihood this outcome could happen or what would be the good or the worst case scenario for this type of claim. And he used technology to like scale it to like different combinations. And that's how they figure out the statistics. So I thought it was like an interesting use of like using scale, um, using technology to scale a lawyer's expertise. And his claim I thought was really interesting about the biased data and court data. And I think like, you might think like, oh, court data, like if something was found, if someone was found guilty or not, or the, um, uh, the penalties or everything like that, that's not biased, but it's interesting here from this law firm, like that actually is. But mm -hmm. just trying to rely on just their lawyers or their top partners, their expertise. They're trying to like 
spread that around and kind of like scale it with the use of technology. So it'd be interesting to see like how law firms go about that. Will they just turn to public data and say like, hey, we'll just throw AI at it? Or how will they um, deal with that? That'd be interesting. So. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, that, that's yeah. cool. And also, I mean, I think, I think also, um, you know, they're not necessarily looking at like one loss data and like that kind of stuff too. Like very often, with, especially with like law firms and, and companies, you know, sometimes they just want to say, okay, look, if I'm in front of Judge X and it takes him or her like, you know, three months before 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 they they'll even consider like a, a motion uh, like a a, a a motion to dismiss or a motion for a directed uh, for judge, uh, whatever a summary judgment. Sorry, I couldn't think of it. Um, or, 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 you know, like, like once they make a decision, it takes, takes them an average of like, or, or once they hear the case, it takes them an average of like four, five, six months before they release, uh, uh, release their decision. Or, or, you know, like, you know, like based on, based on the past, like they're not likely to give, to, to, um, to, to give out a lot of summary judgment motions. So we're probably going to have to try the case or at least get to the jury selection phase. So then you can at least, you know, start to ballpark. Okay. Well, if I'm in front of just this judge based on the history, I'm probably going to, you know, budget for like this much time, um, you know, based on our history, you know, and our billing, we can, we can offer a client this much and, and, and it won't be like a huge burden on us and it won't be a huge burden on them. So as far as like the analytics go in that sense, I understand like the business sense as far as like, you know, using that, using, using that, that kind of precedent to kind of guide what you're going to do as far as like pricing, as far as budgeting and things like that. So I think, I think, I think that, you know, um, like that 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 does have like a legitimate business purpose as far as like using using the data that's available. Yeah, yeah, we're we're getting uh, close to the end of the end of the hour here. I just wanted to mention one other story I thought was notable this week was the uh, the Priori Legal uh, raise of six point three million dollars. They're a legal marketplace, primarily mostly serving larger corporations these days. They actually started out serving small businesses. That was their target market, uh, providing outside lawyers to small businesses. But they pivoted uh, over the years, uh, probably because that's where the money is, uh, and started serving uh, large, large corporations mostly. So, you know, providing uh, law firm lawyers uh, to uh, to big legal departments. I mean, they said they've had a. This has been a, a record year for them. Uh, Probably not surprisingly, uh, in the in the era of the pandemic, uh, but what, what was notable about it uh, uh, is, in part, simply that these are two women founders of a successful legal tech company. Because unfortunately, that is still something that is relatively rare in legal tech. Uh, it is still rare that there are uh, women founders or founders who are people of color in legal tech. Um, and uh, the fact that there are actually two founders uh, at this company who are both women uh, with a great uh, kind of a great backstory and that they met in law school and and went on to found this company together. So uh, congratulations to them. And uh, it, it's good to see it's good to see them having success. Yeah, you know, one story that I thought was kind of fun with them is last time that they did a funding round, both of them were pregnant while doing the funding round. And then this time they started to kick one off again. And then Basha, one of the co-founders, got pregnant for a second time. So we did a second funding round while pregnant. And then pandemic, of course, on top of that. So she was joking with me, man, I'm scared. If I get pregnant for a third time, what's going to happen here? <laughs> uh, a lot more money, maybe, I guess. I don't know how that works, but. Well, and even though um, my case was founded by um, uh, men, but our um, CEOs, well, she was running, uh, was she's the CEO now after the carve out. Um, now that we're, um, we were acquired, but uh, Kim's been running my case for years now and she's our CEO now. So I'll point that out. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> but uh, it's still uh, Kristen Sunday did a recent re uh, survey, uh, sort of an informal survey, uh, Kristen Sunday of Paladin back in 2018. And if I, I'm trying to remember, I think it was something like only 13% of legal tech founders were, were women uh, at that point, uh, some very small percentage. Um, and um, the uh, somebody else did a survey last year on the legal tech companies that were, they got financing of any kind. And, and how many of those had women as as uh, founders or CEOs? And again, the numbers were really small. Uh, so it, it's probably gotten better since then. But I, I think if I, uh, Chris, I don't know, I don't think Kristen is on here, but she, I know she's working on updating the numbers. But I think she said it hasn't 
gotten all that much better in terms of the overall numbers. So it's still something uh, to think about. But all right, well, uh, we are out of time, and uh, thanks to uh, thanks to Steve for joining in this week, uh, and thanks to all of you for. Uh, being part of this and uh, everybody in the audience for uh, watching and listening. We'll be back next Friday with a, a new president or we'll know the president <laughs> or we won't even know the president. Who knows what we'll know. We'll be back next Friday. Anyway, there will not be any president part of our panel. I can tell you that. All right. All right. See y'all. Thanks, Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching.